0: We are glad that you are listening to this audio recording produced by All Things New Church of Birmingham, Alabama. For more information regarding the ministries of All Things New Church, please visit us online at www.allthingsnew.us. I'm sure that you've noticed all the scandals in our society. It seems that every couple of weeks we learn about somebody else's dirty laundry, right? Whether it's a famous talk show host or a mayor or a CEO of some public company or a preacher. It seems that every time you turn around, there's fraud, illicit sex, government collusion, corporate greed. I mean, the, the list just tends to go on and on. Just living in America today, it's hard for me, and I, I'm one of these deeply optimistic people, you know, if I if I see a glass, it's not just half full, it's it's on its way. I mean, it's nearly there. But living in America today, it's hard to avoid the conclusion that something is messed up in our world. I mean, there's something about our world that's fundamentally broken, but But I I think that we need to be honest when we look at headlines like this, because it's not just the world out there. I mean, when we see these headlines, at some point we're confronted with the fact that the brokenness just isn't in the world, but it's in us. I, I think all humans, at some point you wake up and you realize that you are not the person You're supposed to be you're not the person that you know you should be at some point you wake up and you're an angry parent or a selfish teenager you're a liar or an adulterer or a thief an addict and in these kind of moments you realize that the problems with the world sooner or later they take root in our own lives now. What's interesting is how we tend to respond in those moments. In those moments when we look in the mirror and we see our own guilt. A response that appears to be, me to be universal is that we kind of try to turn over a new leaf. I mean, this is kind of ingrained in us. We, we try to set things right. We try to start over. We try to do the right thing. We, we try to just work harder at living up to the principles of being a good person. But if you've lived very long at all, you know that as you go down that road, at the end of the day, it just doesn't work. I mean, at the end of the day, you're still faced with your problems. Now, Christianity, in these ver- in these passages that we've heard read tonight... Christianity has a very specific solution to this situation. If you have your Bible, turn to Psalm 51. And as you're finding that, let let me just fill in a little bit of the background, the story behind this incredible prayer that David prays. Now, the background is in 2 Samuel chapter 11. It's the passage that Stephen read to us, King David. Now, you've got to fix this in your mind. There are more words in in Scripture dedicated to King David than to any other human being in the Bible. This is, next to Christ, the central, most important figure in the Bible, if you're just basing it on the quantity of words. King David has had an affair with Bathsheba. And in his attempt to cover it up, he's murdered Bathsheba's husband. And for something like a year, David has lived a life of self-delusion. For a year, David has refused to face up to his guilt. He's refused to um, come clean about it. He's tried to cover it up himself. But inwardly, he's wasting away. I mean, on the inside, David has tried to ignore his sin. He's tried to turn over a new leaf. He's tried to deal with it on his own, in his own way. But he has failed miserably. And then after a year, a good friend confronts David. And he insists to David's face, David, you've got to deal with this. Now, David takes his friend's advice. David turns to God and Psalm 51 is his prayer of confession. So look with me at this incredible prayer, Psalm 51, and notice the first thing out of David's mouth. Have mercy on me, O God. According to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, Blot out my transgression. All he can say is, God, I throw myself on your mercy. Now, I think when you read these first few verses and when you realize that they are the real prayer of a real person who has really been in anguish, I think what we see here is a soul deeply aware of sin, of offending God desperately. In need of God's mercy. Now, this is the beginning of the Christian solution to sin. And it's this. Honesty. We have to stop glossing over and denying and ignoring guilt. Ignoring the fact that we've messed up. We've got to stop trying to work out and make up for our own failures. Now, look what David prays in verse Two. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin, for I know my transgression and my sin is ever before me against you. You only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. Look in verse one, my transgression in verse two, my iniquity, my sin, verse three, my transgressions, my sin, verse four, I Have sinned. You you see the kind of force that David is saying over and over and over this is me. It's not anybody else, but God, I'm looking at you with my guilt. This word transgression, it's treason, it's rebellion in the face of God's incredible mercy. God had done so much in David's life. And by naming his actions transgression, he is owning up to the fact that he has committed treason against his king. And in, in the second verse, he talks about iniquity. Here he's using a word for sin that kind of has the nuance of perversion. He's saying it's not just that I've kind of tripped up, but I'm twisted. I'm perverted. And then when he when he uses the actual word that we normally use, he uses the word sin. In the second half of verse two, David is indicating this idea that God's got a standard and he's missed the standard. He's fallen far short of the standard. The imagery that David uses in the first three verses, it's really quite astounding. In, In that first verse, look, have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, blot out. I mean, it's like David looks at his life and he sees a diary. And he wants to shut the diary, right? He doesn't want those pages there anymore. And he can't erase the diary of his life. All he can do is beg that God would blot out that Part of his history in the second verse, it's like he's looking at his life and he, and he sees himself completely stained like a piece of clothing. And look what he says. Wash me, cleanse me. He's saying, God, I am so dirty. If you don't wash me, nothing I've done, no leaf I've turned over, no good thing I've tried to do to to make up for this. God, you've got to wash This out of me in there at the end of verse two, cleanse me from my sins. Here he's got this idea when he uses the word cleanse, he's picking up a word from his religion, from the Jewish religion that goes back in the Old Testament. He's picking up a word that says, I've got a disease and I need you to do for me. What only a priest can do when a man has been. Healed of a disease and he can make him pure again. I need you to cleanse me of this dreadful, deadly disease. When I read Psalm 51, I'm struck. Most frequently by the last half of verse three, my sin is ever before me. You get the idea that David is haunted by the ghost of Uriah. I mean, he wiped him out physically, but he hasn't erased him from his memory. This ghost, my sin is ever... Have you ever been at this place? You cannot escape what you've done. Imagine David here, he sees his sin... In those moments when Bathsheba looks at him and there's the distinct sadness in her eyes. And if you know this part of the Bible, his general Joab, I'm sure Joab, he would catch cynical glances from Joab. One of the parts of the passage that Stephen read, one of his servants who had no power with David, when David sent for, your, for Bathsheba, one of the servants said, you mean Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliah, the husband of Uriah? And the servant was trying to say, ease up there i can 't imagine what these servants, his soldiers, his sons, must have for twelve months, this ghost has tracked him down it 's haunted him in summer and winter and sleeping and waiting it 's with him in the night. He rises up in the morning and it is there when he 's getting dressed when he 's walking to a meeting it 's there, and finally, David has turned to face God in verse four. He says, Against you, God, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. So you are justified in your words and you are blameless in your judgment. Now, this is an astounding statement. I mean, David had sinned against Uriah by committing adultery with Uriah's wife, right? And he had sinned against Bathsheba by bringing her into this adulterous relationship. And he had sinned against Joab by involving him in murder. But ultimately, David is giving us a profound insight that is distinct to Christianity. He is saying, ultimately, at its core... Sin is most grievous, not against other human beings, but against God. See, David is gripped by the fact that God is holy and perfect. And God, because he's our creator, has a claim upon our life that when we transgress his ways, no matter what has happened at its core, we have committed treason against him. You see, David is not only sorry for his consequences, he is sorry for the fact that he has sinned against the king, God. Look at verse 5. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, you delight in truth and the inward being, and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. Here, David is giving us really kind of the central, fundamental commitment of a Christian view of sin. And it's this. It's not society. It's not circumstances. It's not even learned behavior. It's that when we were born, we were born broken. That with babies who grow into two-year-olds, We don't have to teach them to steal. We don't have to teach them to lie. We don't have to teach them to be selfishness. It's the idea that we have a broken nature from the get-go. David is saying here, sin is not simply doing something bad. Sin is a deep inner reality that, that we all have. He's saying... This is who I am. This is me. I am not just someone who did a bad thing. I am a sinner. I think this is the heart of Christianity. It's this idea that we are more sinful than we ever could possibly believe. And the Bible is clear on this and page after page after page. I don't remember who I was speaking to last night at the bonfire, but somebody in our church was telling me about reading in the Old Testament and how they're struck by the fact that even God's chosen people, even God's favorite from Abraham on, they're just filled with broken. There's idolatry and complaining and lying and murder and incest, and the list goes on and on and on. Now, when there's sin in your life, part of what we're seeing in Psalm 51 is that until you can humbly admit not just that you've done something bad, but that you are twisted and you are broken. Until you can do that, you will not be liberated to see your flaws in the correct way. You will not be liberated to receive forgiveness. David is not the only person in the Bible to fail in the second half of life. And for this group tonight, that's important. I mean, think about where David had already been up to this point. He had been places with God that um, none of us will ever experience. He had already written things that we're still reading today because they were so inspired by God. They are holy scripture. Our hearts so easily forget that the real treasure of life is the kingdom of God. And Satan, our enemy, is so cunning. He will wait decades to destroy you. Decades. He will wait 40, 50 years to set a trap for you. See, one of our problems is that When we commit a sinful action and get away with it, we assume that means we got away with it. And we stop realizing that that all sin is demonic. And it gives Satan an, an, an avenue into our life. And for so long, David had so much going on good He had gotten away with some little things. But our enemy is patient. I wonder if there are any of us in this room and you have loved God and served God faithfully. But there is something in your life that you're um, excusing and that you're getting away with. And no matter what everybody around you sees, you know that deep in the soul, you're a shadow of what you once were. And like David, when you look at the acre of your life, you see the harvest of hell. Look at the front of your worship guide again. Shislaw Milosh. Look at this poem that he wrote. I did not expect to live in such an unusual moment when the God of thunders and rocky heights, the Lord of hosts, Kyrios Sabaoth, would humble people to the quick, allowing them to act whatever way they wish. Has God done that to you? Has God let you do what you really want to do? I think that if you have. David's prayer shows the way out. Look what he says in verse seven. Purge me with hyssop and I will be clean. Wash me and I will be whiter than snow. David can't stand his filth anymore. But he knows that God can cleanse him from it. Look at verse eight. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you've broken rejoice. This is really a a really incredible image, isn't it? Let me hear joy again. He's not saying I'm no longer joyful. He's saying I can't even feel joy anymore. He's become deaf to the sounds of joy. Somebody shares a a joyful, celebrative experience and everybody around rejoices and David joins in. But in his guts, he's deaf to it. He knows he's faking it. He knows that he hasn't heard joy for months. There, There was a time when David would take his harp and he would fill the palace with songs of delight, but it's not there for over a year. David has been trying to cover his sin, but instead his sin has been covering him. And there's no way he's tried and tried and tried. There's no way for David to get back that spirit of tenderness that made it possible for him to hear the voice of joy. You see, sin takes away your song. Look at verse nine. Hide your face from my sins. Blot out all my iniquities. You you know, it's those moments when when you're worshiping God in song or in prayer. and, And for just a moment, you forget what you've done. But then as you gaze upon his beauty, you're suddenly overwhelmed with shame. And you stop singing. Or you keep singing so nobody around you notices you've changed, but you start faking it. See, sin disgraces us. It takes our confidence away. Sin will make a coward out of you. It will make you a coward in your worship. It will make you a coward in your witness. It will make you a coward in your prayers. Look at verse 10. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. This word create, this was originally written in the Hebrew language, and they had multiple words for create. Create. There was one word that was very special it 's the same word bara that 's used in Genesis one verse one in the beginning God bara God created the heavens and the earth it means to create out of nothing it means to to absolutely do a brand new thing it doesn 't mean to renovate or remodel or renew or put together in a new way it means to create something it's a it 's a verb create that is only used of God in the Bible. And David is saying, God, only you can fix this. I've tried for a year. I can't do to my heart what needs to be done to my heart. My life is in ruins because of my sin. It is in shambles and nothing less than a heart transplant, nothing less than a miracle as big as Genesis 1.1 is going to change me. C.S. Lewis once wrote, if I am a grass field, all the cutting of grass will keep grass less, but it will not produce wheat. If I want wheat, I must be plowed and sown again. It's important for us to realize that David is not just doing some kind of therapeutic confession here. He is saying there is such a thing as guilt and I can't lift it. I can't take it off. I can't remove it. Only God can fix guilt. Verse 11. Cast me not away from your presence. Take not your Holy Spirit away from me. Now, look, David, before he was king, there was another king. And this king's name was Saul. And Saul loved God and he walked with God and God blessed Saul. But Saul sinned grievously against God. And the scripture is very clear. God took his Holy Spirit away from Saul. And David was in the throne room. He was there when Saul lost God's presence. And this part of scripture should scare us to death. It says that Saul went crazy. He went mad. And David is saying, God, I know where this road leads. I saw it in my mentor. I saw it in Saul. God, please don't do to me what I deserve because I know it ends in madness. I know where this ends. Please don't do that, Tamika. Look at verse 12. Restore to me the joy of your salvation. And uphold me with a willing spirit. You see, this is different than earlier. Earlier he said, I can't hear joy. But now he's saying, look, my problem is more fundamental than my hearing. I don't have joy anymore. Now, look, hear what I'm saying and, and please hear it all. Much depression in our world today is caused by sin. Now, I'm not saying that there's no such thing as depression that requires medication. There absolutely is. But some of us, when we hit the rocks, before we turn to a psychologist or to drugs, we need to turn to God. Because sin shatters us on every level. Including our emotions. The last half of verse 12. Uphold me with the willing spirit. He's saying, God, pick me up and sustain me. I don't ever again want to fall into this sin. Now, if there is sin in your life. That you are refusing to confess and deal with. It will eat you alive. And you must learn to follow David's example here and turn to God and come clean. Now, the good news is that verse 12 is not the end of the psalm. In fact, the next word is my favorite word in the whole psalm. Then. Then. God, if you clean me. If you barah, if you created me a clean heart, if you open my ears, God, if you restore me, then look what he says. Then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will return to you. Then, then, then look how confident he is. He doesn't just say, then I'll tell people about you. He says, then I'll tell people about you. And guess what they're going to do? They're going to return to you. He's saying, God, if you just forgive me because I know you can do it. If you do it, God, I will be an unstoppable witness. Nobody, you couldn't stop me from from showing people the same sea of mercy that I've dived into. And you know what, God? They'll return to you. Earlier I said that sin makes a coward out of us. But forgiveness makes us courageous. Forgiveness does something to how could David keep quiet now that the bells of his heart are ringing with joy. And how could anybody else reject this mercy that he's experienced? And then look what he says in verse 14. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, right? He had committed murder. Oh God, Oh God of my salvation. And my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. Oh Lord. Open my lips and my mouth will declare your praise for you will not delight in sacrifice or I would give it. You will not be pleased with the burnt offering, the sacrifices of God or a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. Oh, God, you will not despise. In verse 13, he was showing us, then I will be an unstoppable witness. But in verses 14 through 17, he's saying, then I will be an unstoppable worshiper. He's saying, God, if you forgive me, you will not be able to stop me from worshiping you. Look, when there is sin in your life. And your memory has mercilessly lashed you with the specter of your own transgression. The joy of forgiveness. Will erupt in the song of worship. And this worship that David is talking about, it is deeply personal on the back of our worship guide. We've got this whole list of our beliefs, and I've been preaching through this list that we're a church with a reformed worldview, that we have orthodox doctrine. But we've also got this section that talks about our evangelical doctrine. And part of being evangelical is an insistence on your personal relationship with God. And what we see here is a personal worship of God. It's not enough just to be part of a church that gathers ritually to worship God, but that you as an individual, I as an individual must have this personal worship of God. Look what he says here. God, you will not delight in sacrifice or I will give it. You will not be pleased. He's talking there about cultic worship. He's talking there about worship like we're doing here, ritualized worship. He's saying, God, when you forgive me personally, then there's going to be more worship in my life than that. It'll be there on Monday when I wake up, and Tuesday when I go to sleep, and Wednesday when I'm in the middle of algebra class or whatever, that I will be an an unstoppable worshiper. Verse 18 has always confused me. All of a sudden, it feels like some editor came along and added something to the end of David's prayer. Do good to Zion in your good pleasure. Build up the walls of Jerusalem. Then will you delight in right sacrifices and burnt offerings and whole burnt offerings? Then bulls will be offered on your altar. It's almost like an editor came along and said, "Okay, let's put this little bit in there. David was kind of chastising public ritual temple worship. Yeah, ease up there, David, because that's important, too. Let's add this in at the at the end. And then after more than a decade of praying this prayer, suddenly I realized the truth of it. Suddenly I realized when there's sin in my life, not only does it make a coward out of me when it comes to my witness and my worship, but it makes a coward out of me when it comes to my prayers and I lose the capacity to pray for others. And I realize that what has happened here with David is he's sinned and he's confessed his sin and now all of a sudden, his heart is erupting in joy. It's given him the ability to witness. It's giving him the ability to once again worship. And ultimately, it's given him the ability to pray for others. There's something about sin that makes you turn inward and you lose the capacity. To push out toward others in your spiritual life, when I've come clean When I've confessed, when I've returned to God, my ability to intercede for others drastically improves. One of my favorite authors um, has a phrase that I think captures the movement that we sense in this prayer. He talks about the moment in life. When you realize The strangeness of evil has been eclipsed by the even deeper strangeness of grace. And I think that's what David has shown us here. Now, like I said earlier, part of what this message is about is is that at the heart of biblical Christianity, it's not just what we as a church do. It's not just kind of an external religion that at the heart of biblical Christianity is your personal relationship with God. And in this sense, I think when, you, when we read something like Psalm 51 and when a pastor preaches on Psalm 51, we've got to always remember that the spiritual life, your personal relationship to God, it's like swimming or, or riding a bike or painting or writing a novel or becoming a nuclear physicist. In this sense. You cannot become a nuclear physicist or a swimmer merely by reading textbooks. Now, you definitely, you know, for the nuclear physicist, please read. Right. But you've got at some point attach yourself to a mentor. You've got to enter the laboratory. You've got to slowly begin to act like a physicist. Tonight, we've read Psalm 51 and I've walked us through. It's kind of incredible emotional textures. But it is only when you begin to pray Psalm 51 that you can know this God. See, there is a knowledge that can only come about by doing. Now, there are some types of knowledge you can get in a theoretical level, but there's a Entirely different form of knowledge that only comes about by practice. And that's what the spiritual life is. When Jesus said this is eternal life that you may know God, he's not talking about theoretical knowledge. He's talking about the type of knowledge that a nuclear physicist needs. He's talking about the type of knowledge that a swimmer has of swimming. He's talking about a type of knowledge that only comes about through practice. And prayer is like that. Prayer is a skill. And the only way to learn to pray is to pray and to practice and to be disciplined. So you need to mark Psalm 51, not as something that teaches you about repentance, but as the place to turn when you need to repent. Let me draw all of this together by sharing one of the many amazing stories that has developed over the past century, century and a half, about the great 19th century Italian violinist Niccolo Paganini. I'm sure this story, like a lot of the stories that have risen about his life, I'm sure it's got. A mixture of fantasy and fact, but the story is still quite a profound image of what we learn in Psalm 51. It goes like this One night, Paganini was performing before this packed audience surrounded by a full orchestra, and as he began to play the final piece, one of the strings of his violin snapped. But Paganini, because he was a genius, he, he kept playing, and he didn 't miss any notes and then another string snapped, and another string in fact, Paganini has written a sonata based on one string. he had this ability but there 's a story that the way it developed was he 's playing, and the strings pop, and he kind of does this all on the way. Now he did things like that he would play with frayed strings and let them pop during the you know during the the performance when the piece gets to the end he 's Playing away on his violin with just one string. When the piece is over, the crowd erupts, and this would happen. Paganini um, was like a, a celebrity. The crowd's erupted in a roar. And then the newspaper articles say that at the end of this one particular concert, Paganini raises his hands in prideful victory, and he shouts at the top of his lungs, "Paganini in one string!" And everybody kind of goes crazy. Now, like I said, I don't know how much of the story is fact and fiction, but I know that there are some of us who have lost too much. And there is so little left. We've wasted so much that it's great to realize that there is a maestro who can pick up the instrument of our life and he can do more with one string. And you can do with all four. That's what we see in Psalm 51. David leaves Psalm 51 still an adulterer and still a murderer, but his life is in the hands of a maestro who made music with him yet again. That's the Christian solution to sin. Let's pray.